0: Mark Graben and Jamie Flinchball are two guys drinking whiskey while chatting about lean ideas, experiences, and news. Let's hope they hold their liquor because they're not holding back on sharing their opinions. It's time for lean whiskey, lean talk with a fun spirit. Hello, this is Jamie Flinchball, and welcome to another episode of Lean Whiskey. Uh, Mark Rabin, uh, my usual co-host, is not with us, uh, but I have a new co-host just for today, a uh, uh, guest who will be with us uh, talking about all sorts of things. Uh, but Chris, why don't you start by introducing yourself, a little bit about your background, what you do.
1: Excellent. Well, thanks for having me. I'm Chris Kautzman. Um, I have worked at Lehigh University for almost a decade now. I'm a two-time alum of Lehigh um, and they, they pulled me in, um, in, in a fashion that I never predicted for myself and have completely fallen in love with. Um, so my background is actually in the engineering discipline. I was a mechanical engineer, um, undergrad and stayed for a master's in technical entrepreneurship. Um, And when I was thinking about moving into industry and startup jobs or industry roles, um, the executive director, Lisa Gessler, pulled me into the office um, and said, hey, we hear you're about to take a job, but what if you kind of stuck around here? And you've been through our programs as a student. Um, You recognize some of the problems that, that we have and how you could fix those and help us launch new programs in the gaps. And that was a decade ago. And so <laughs> since then, um, my my role has evolved a number of times and currently I'm the innovator in residence. Um, and My primary responsibilities are to teach classes like the design thinking class, um, our Lehigh Silicon Valley program over winter break um, and all sorts of other entrepreneurial design thinking programs, as well as work directly with um, early stage founders and helping them identify problems in the world they want to solve, how to get those early stage ideas moving forward, and in partnership with you, helping them grow. And, and once they get to a certain stage, we bring in your expertise and your support and you volunteer your time to to bring them to the next level. Yeah. So we're we're,
0: we're both Lehigh uh, mechanical engineers, although different decades. Um, I, I use uh, probably even less of it than you do. <laughs> uh, it's, you play around perhaps with, with people working on design a, a little more actively than I get to, but neither one of us uh, followed that pursuit too aggressively. Um, and and it, it actually just occurred to me, uh, you know, kind of how you ended up in this, uh, how similar it was to when I started the, the old consulting firm I, I co-founded with, with Andy Carlino and, and Denny Pauly, I started off I mean, as a co-founder, but my intent was to go act as COO at another company and I was creating a supplier to myself and I'm like, yeah, but this is, so I was, was going to go do that and then I realized this is what I love and I can help more people this way and I just kind of committed to that and it was a great path for me. So,
1: And, and that's exactly what I found. I, I told Lisa when I first joined um, on the staff side of the university I'll probably be here for two years max, but I think I can learn more in those two years. And once I really got into it and I got to spend the time with the students and see how how smart they were and how much just a little bit of coaching and feedback and guidance could change, not only their ventures, but really just their their perspective on where they can take their lives. um, That has squarely been the thing that that has kept me around. Um, And it's just unbelievable to see students now. And I look back when I was a student and say, I don't know how they're doing it because there's no way I was as high functioning and aware of the world and the problems and then take to take the initiative to go start new ventures and solve those problems. Yeah, especially that last part, right? I mean, everyone can
0: be more aware these days just because of what we have available to us. But the initiative is, I think anybody feeling depressed about the world, go work with some really smart college students and you'll be like, yeah, there's a lot of hope. <laughs> there's a lot of hope that, that good things can happen because there's, there's so much there's plenty of talent and there's always talent but where are these these, these young people are jumping off and the initiative to go act right take action is, is definitely deeper than you know when I went when I went it was go get a job and then figure out how to make a contribution but,
1: yeah. but these are folks that want to make a contribution and
0: it's, it's, it, it fuels you
1: and and that's something that I've seen in higher ed broadly. You go to conferences, you're you're talking to other faculty, and very often I'll hear faculty saying, Oh, the millennials and the Gen Zers, they just they don't put in the time, and I have to change my expectations now, and they're not committed, and they're just they're sleeping through class. And and I very often sit back and say, I don't know who your students are, but my students are passionate and excited and, and driven far more so than past generations that I've seen. Um, but you have to give them the right opportunity to be able to do that yeah and and show them the way in which they can go apply their core disciplines in these creative ways to make an impact in in the world. And then I've seen them take full advantage of that, and it's been been just phenomenal to watch yeah and and we all forget
0: that I'll say let's speak for my own generation we, we 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 didn't go to class and sleep through it. We just slept and never went to the class. <laughs> so it's it's not like we were uh, uh, you know role model uh, role models. Uh, but we we, sit, we tend to have short memories about those types of things. So so this is lean whiskey, and and we'll we'll talk about lean and design thinking, and here in a bit. But we'll talk about the whiskey, and we're doing this uh, recording this one in person uh, since I live close to Lehigh, as you work there. Um, so uh, we're, we're pouring out of my uh, out of my collection, and yeah, we've made two pours today. A little, bit, a little bit of each. Um, so we're starting with the Nika Coffee Malt Whiskey, which I think in separate episodes. Mark Rabin and I have both uh, both featured. It's a, it's a great, uh, nuanced, uh, really well-made um, uh, Japanese whiskey uh, that I enjoy. And, of course, we'll link to that in the show notes. And then um, new to both, so that will be new to you. Um, and the new to both of us, uh, I have a, I picked up a bottle of Blue Run, which is one of these, you know, sort of overly scarce, um, often a bit overpriced, but uh, well well-regarded bourbons. Um, uh, so this is the Blue Run uh, Kentucky Straight uh, High Rye, and uh, I just cracked it open a little bit ago and poured our first the first two pours out of it. So we'll we'll be giving that a shot. So so. So these are on my collection, but you you've you enjoy whiskey too. You just maybe don't drink it quite as often as I might.
1: I I may drink it as often. I just don't drink the quality as often. And so I I've proud I I am prideful in the fact that on a on a normal basis I'll just have Old Crow on the rocks and thoroughly enjoy it. And the benefit of that is that when I have these types of whiskeys. It's bliss because I'm not used to drinking this, so the amount of joy I get when we we make these types of jumps in in tasting is is phenomenal. So my my standard practice is bottom shelf, and I thoroughly enjoy it, and it, it makes these times even even better for me. Well,
0: yeah, and Old Crow is is definitely bottom shelf. Oh yeah, <laughs> and and there's a, there's a lot to that. I, I forget the. F- the stoic philosopher, I don't know if it was Seneca or someone else, but they say you should always, you know, go without, right. Learn how to, you know, live in poverty for a little while. And so that a, you're not afraid of, of, of that. Um, but also you can appreciate the things that you have. And I, I, I feel like, uh, you know, the idea of, of sliding down my whiskey, uh, scale is, a. Uh, is a stressful proposition. So (laughs) I think I, I think I'm already, you know, it it is a deep rabbit hole and
1: I'm, I'm at the wrong end of it (laughs) at this point. And I'm trying to stay out of that. And it's, it's the same reason that I love camping and and hiking. And, you know, I lived out of a van for a while with my girlfriend last summer. Um, Because when you, when you have some degree of deprivation, right, even if it's minor for a few hours, the peanut butter ramen you make at the end of a 20 mile hike is the best food you could possibly imagine. Yep. Yet you have that in a different context and it's, it's practically unbearable to eat. And so I love playing with that, you know, the differential you can create in experience. And it's my same philosophy on whiskey. So I thoroughly enjoy this right now. And this is unbelievable that I get to have this. And I enjoy it more because the last drink I had was, you know, a $10 bottom shelf bottle.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's, um, you know, there, there's a lot of sort of phrasing around whiskey and how people nomenclature, how people talk about it, not just what it is and how it's made, but there's a lot of, you know, uh, what's an everyday drinker, and, you know, this is it, you know, you don't know what to pour, you just pour this or you pour this every day out of habit. And then, you know, you have special occasion whiskeys or ones that you just use special evening, you want to pour something and then you have the one you save for you know special guests. And so like I had a 28 year bottle of scotch uh, that took me quite a while to finish because I only poured it you know, for most favorite guests that <laughs> would come by and really seem like they would appreciate it. And it's been gone for quite a while and I miss it. Um, but, but yeah, that's the beautiful thing about whiskey is, I mean, you can, Make cheap cocktails with it. You can be creative on the cocktail side with it. You can have an everyday drinker
1: and you can have a special treat all in one category. Oh. And, and we do have the special treat. We've, we, I was just telling you before we got started, I have a bottle of Glen Breton from Nova Scotia that is our special treat bottle. It's unopened, it's been on our shelf for six months now. We already drank one bottle out of it over the summer with family and sharing it. And this one is our special guest bottle. So we're going to invite you over and tell us how good it actually is. And we'll <laughs> open it up when you come over. Fantastic. Well, looking forward to that. That's. I do enjoy, I love the
0: variety of it, which is also what I love about entrepreneurship and what I also love about, or working with entrepreneurs. And what I also love about, you know, the advisory work that I do is I get tremendous variety and that keeps it fresh and interesting and and always, always learning. And so, yeah, I I, I never mind drinking a whiskey I've never had before. that is never going to end up my favorite and but it was it was different and it was worth it so that i that being said i don't i tend not to drink a screwball or or a fireball i i think i've earned the right to
1: avoid those at this point so my my sister will still make a mean sangria with fireball and i will drink that hand hand pressed fresh apples and some fireball i'll take that on a holiday if if it's needed
0: that's 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 enough there to cover it up so (laughs) so we're going to talk about design thinking and so let me let me just add a little setup here for you know for folks that are used to learning about lean is that you know lean has a lot of tangents that extend out of lean uh, one of which is the lean startup sort of, I'll call it a movement, but a lean startup activity, which overlaps heavily and has, you know, an awful lot to do with more traditional lean, but was really meant to sort of fuel the, uh, you know, the startup community, think differently, think about customers and, you know, markets and experimentation. And I, I think the the strongest tie to traditional Versions of Lean is the experimentation, learn and learn rapidly. Design thinking is, and so we both, you know, we both spend time with you know Lean startup principles, right? And then the the design thinking is is one that I think similar to the whole learning organization and and all the the movements and activities that that connected to that around Peter Senge and everything else that ended up coming from a different angle, but overlapped with lean by a good 60%. <laughs> I don't know if that's the right number, but, and design thinking is similar, right? So it, 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 it didn't, it wasn't born out of lean, but when you really start to look at it, even though a lot of the nomenclature is different, um, it, it just sort of overlaps with lean a great deal. Um, yeah, perhaps because of the nomenclature, it, it hasn't maybe caught on with the lean community quite, quite as actively. So I think it's a very interesting explore area, and it's and it's what you spend an awful lot of your time on.
1: Yeah, and and sometimes that that fact is actually a benefit of design thinking, especially when I'm working with younger students um, or folks that are uncomfortable in the business world or startup world, because the nomenclature is different. You, you can almost it's more approachable for some subsets of of um, folks who need the design principles, need this human-centered design, which at its core is what design thinking is, human-centered design. Um, but you can approach it without the terms of entrepreneurship, lean startup, you know, business improvement process. You know, it's approached as human-centered design. And so we see that can be actually a benefit of it, the shift in nomenclature, even though the core content and principles is a huge overlap with many traditional you know, lean operations or, or other you know, kind of business philosophies
0: yeah and there's there's many of us that have felt the the nomenclature of lean is is counterproductive including the word lean Mm -hmm. um you know and 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 there's no committee to go to to say hey let's change it right so people propose that hey let's use a different word uh on an individual basis and nine out of ten times it's their own personal branding (laughs) that they want to change it to um but but yeah the nomenclature can be in the way and uh you know, design thinking is, is, is certainly more, uh, you know, more accessible from, from, from that regard. So, um, so, so why don't we jump, I was, sorry, I was deciding mid-question mid whether I want to talk about history first or define design thinking. But we should probably just kind of start there is like when you're talking to a group of students that are new to the topic and you just say, hey, I have a design thinking course, what's
1: that? how do you how do you introduce the topic yeah so so this is one that's challenging because it's got such a wide application so usually what i talk about um, to to start is that it's a human-centered design process and at its core it's really just a systematic problem solving tool systematic problem solving and the way i usually intro it is starting to talk about kind of how ideas normally are formed and, and That could be anywhere from startup business ideas or policy changes. And very often what we see is somebody comes and the the perspective that's given is there's this light bulb moment. They start with the idea, they've got this idea. And so I'll intro that and say, you've got this light bulb moment. The reality is in the design thinking process, that's actually the step that's directly in the middle of the process. So at its core, design thinking has, has five main steps. Starts with empathy, then define, ideate, prototype, and test. And so the way I usually intro it is that most people start with the idea Mm -hmm. and they don't even realize that they're starting in a place that's already two steps further than they should be. Then they move forward and they realize later they need to go back and empathize. Whether that's empathize with a customer, empathize with a user, empathize with a citizen in a local government because you're trying to create a new policy... Define what problems, needs, and desires they have, not what perceived problems, needs, and desires you think they have. Then move into ideation once you have a very clear understanding of the problem, needs, and desires. Then prototype and test those ideas and then iterate through that cycle hundreds of times in whatever order is appropriate, um, depending on what you've learned from those prototyping and testing stages. Yeah, and, and,
0: that, and so that idea of systematic problem-solving which you know, when I wrote People Solve Problems, uh, in the last well, I guess I wrote it two years ago, it's been out a year, but yeah, you know, everybody assumed it was a lean book, and then a whole bunch of people read it. And I, I one of my favorite quotes was somebody said, oh, I was expecting a bunch of wonky, lean stuff, <laughs> and found out this actually applies exactly to what I do. I was like, Yes, yeah, so I wrote it that way, and and it's because. While I have a preferred set of problem solving methodologies, they aren't the right ones. They're just the ones I use. And you go look at design thinking or trees or uh, you know good engineering disciplines or even you know machine design, which was I, I learned from Alex Slocum at MIT. You know a lot of the fundamentals are the same, <laughs> and all of them put the ideation later, right? Um, None of them begin with the idea. that that is almost a universal, maybe it is a universal, a universal theme of good systematic problem solving. So you don't start with the idea. But as human beings, we can't help ourselves. <laughs> um, so, so this is a, a little a little narrow as a as the next question, but I, I want to ask it anyway. Um, do you find it's easier? It was somebody that starts with an idea to uh, to have them discard that idea and start over,
1: or just work back and then back forward again. So we've seen it happen in both both directions. Um, generally, it's easier to come in with a blank slate because once people get an idea, you you get attached to it and. When I try and work with people to bring that idea back to the empathy phase and the define stage, what I find very often they're doing is they'll go in and empathize with a potential customer or user in a situation. And the questions will be much more related to, so do you think my idea is a good idea? Right. (laughs) And it's like, no, that's not empathizing. That's just asking them their feedback on your idea. Empathizing is actually starting without telling them your ideas. So when I do work with people who have an idea, but they need to kind of go back and really validate where the real problems are with their their user group, um, I actually tell them, you're not allowed to bring up your idea until the the last quarter of the conversation, if that. Mm -hmm. Really, in the empathy phase, you should be focusing on user-generated stories. Don't let them summarize their behavior, but actually ask them for real stories. People are generally not very good at At summarizing their own behaviors, right? So if you're asking about, say, their grocery shopping habits, don't ask them about what do you usually buy when you go to the grocery store or which path do you usually take when you walk around the store? Literally ask them, describe the last time you went to the store to me and how did you navigate the store? What did you buy? Mm -hmm. Get a specific story and then ask for details in that story as they're telling you that. So open-ended questions searching for stories, and not sharing your ideas. Because as soon as you share your ideas, they will bias their answers, whether positively or negatively, right. and cater towards that, that concept. So it's challenging to do, but when you, when you can convince somebody that that open-ended idea is, is worthwhile, very often they're able to go do it. It's challenging, though, to give it up. And the longer you are working on the idea, the harder it is to give up. Mm -hmm. So if I'm working with somebody who just came up with the idea last week, relatively easy. If I'm working with somebody who's been prototyping their idea for two years and they're coming out of a research lab and they still haven't talked to a a customer, it's much, much harder because they've already been so tied into this, this idea and believe in it so much themselves. And so we usually joke that that is fine, but we consider that a hobby. Not a venture mm-hmm. because you built it for yourself and what you believe, not based on what somebody else needs in the in the world.
0: Yeah, and that that going with with empathy and you know not just testing your idea yet, right? But really, you're going to learn. You know, there, there's a lean phrase: go to the gamba or or go and see, or what I usually called it, which was direct observation, which was, mm-hmm. you know unfiltered, unbiased, see what actually is. And I would always give the advice is, see the world the way a video camera would see it, right? Uh, no filters, no opinions, no judgments, just, just facts, right, just, just observations. But, but also, and you kind of hinted at this, is see it at a granular level. That would always be, it's one of my favorite words for some reason, I just, <laughs> I, love, I love the word granularity in, in, in part because nobody seems to use the word um but also usually that's the that's where the gems are right it's in the granularity and um you mentioned go to the store and shop but it's like oh that 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 one moment halfway through shopping that's where the nugget is right yep. and if you don't have that granularity and depth along with the beginner's mindset the, the curiosity to, to to learn it's just not going to stick it's not going to not
1: going Um, and, and this is one of those areas where the nomenclature and the, the words we use are just shifted. So we have the exact same technique in design thinking, but we call it the traveler's eye. So instead of calling it, you know, see it through the camera, we call it the traveler's eye and the traveler's eye concept in the empathy phase is to see the world as if you just stepped off a plane in a foreign country. Because that traveler's eye, when you do it there, you notice everything, everything. You notice it, you notice the different languages, the different signs, the different smells, the different ways the taxi driver pulls up, the cars. Everything is observable to you when you're that traveler in a new place, mm-hmm. and so that's actually the same technique that we use in the empathy phase for observation: is go to that grocery store, but then use the traveler's eye. Don't don't do the the glazing over of, oh yeah, of course everyone uses a shopping cart. No, observe the shopping cart. Observe the sound it makes. Observe where the child is in the shopping cart. Look at what they're pointing out. Which route do they take around? You know, so we very often in that observe stage use that technique to say, we glaze over many of the problems that exist because they're so common to us. And when you put that traveler's eye on in the empathy phase, you actually start to see all sorts of new things that we're just too used to and accept as as day-to-day problems. And so traveler's eye, same concept, and again, just a nomenclature difference, but same fundamental concept um, on the upfront of the process. Yeah, for those who haven't experienced it, I think, you know,
0: I I really think going to a foreign country, a very foreign country, right, is is a great analogy um, because you know, first of all, it is, it is straining, right? I mean, it's it takes your energy just to exist in that world because you are paying attention to so many things. Um, I, I traveled extensively you know, around the world and and uh, I, I still remember my first time arriving in Jerusalem on, on the Sabbath. I'm like, no restaurants are open and the elevator, you can't use the buttons. It just stops on every floor and you have to, just pay attention. Get on when it comes to your floor, and get off when it gets to where you're going. And and uh, like never never occurred to me that, that yeah. I know I was standing in front of the elevator, going, how does this how does this elevator work right now? I, I don't understand. And but then you get curious as to why, and you learn an awful lot very very fast. Um, very hard to live that way, right? So it, it. I think you know we we rely on as human beings. We rely on. Most of what we do to get through the day is assumed and hard-coded, right? Or at least pretty well-coded. And so it's almost impossible to live in that mode. So you have to kind of decide, like, this is, this is when I'm gonna go in with full, full-on observation mode, right? Full-on view of, of learn everything I can, see it at a granular level, and, and, and take in information with a beginner's mind. Um, but it's, it's tiring, it's hard.
1: Yeah, it's, it's exhausting. I, when I was growing up, um, I, was, I had severe OCD as a, as a child. Um, and I remember talking to a, a therapist at, when I was a kid. And I didn't, I didn't know that I had OCD. I just knew that I was washing my hands until they were bleeding. And I couldn't touch, you know, a thousand objects in the house. And I tracked all that in my brain. And he talked about this concept that we go into autopilot mode. Mm-hmm. And I so distinctly remember this and talked to him as a kid because it, it helped me get over that. Because what his tactic was, was to every time I I washed my hands, or I thought about this thing, or I thought about a doorknob, I had to make a tick mark on on an index card. And then I had to bring that index card to him at the following session. And it was a way for me to recognize my own autopilot functions in life Mm -hmm. so that I could see what was going on tangibly and then start to address that. And so the same thing happens in in the observation. If you just pick the category that you want to observe, in my case back then, it was hand washing, right? But if it's the grocery store, it's less exhausting because you're not doing it all the time. You just pick, for this one hour, I'm going to sit here, I'm going to go through that beginner's eye, that traveler's eye, and focus so deeply on every interaction and every conversation and every squeak and every checkout line and be able to observe it. So it is exhausting. But when you, when you can get out of that autopilot or recognize which functions in your day are autopilots, it actually relieves a, 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 it shows a lot of opportunity that exists for entrepreneurial ventures, for policy changes, and, and is the kicking off point to move into the next phase of design thinking, which is that define phase, where you take all those observations, you take all those interviews and conversations from the empathy stage, and you start to craft it into these very specific uh, problem statements. And within that, we then, we always try and gauge the balance between high impact and actionable scale. Because mm-hmm. if we're out of sync in either of those, generally, whether it's a policy or it's a new entrepreneurial venture, it's, it, it doesn't work. So when I, when I work with students, I always use the examples of um, if either are too extreme, it won't work. So one example is... Super high impact but low actionability. So if a student comes to me good-hearted student and says I want to provide medical access for um, Heart medications across the continent of Africa Super high-impact if you can do that exceptional high-impact wonderful great Right, but almost zero actionability, right because the next question they'll have is like so where do I start? Well, go talk to somebody. Well, how do I talk to somebody in a remote village in Kenya? Well, if you can't talk to them, then you probably shouldn't be trying to solve their problem. Right. Right. And so amazing impact, but zero actionability. Mm -hmm. On the flip side, I could immediately step outside on Lehigh's campus and find a piece of trash that's on the sidewalk and pick it up and throw it in the garbage. Immediately actionable. And that is a good thing to do. But the, act, but the impact of that is so small that it's not going to affect large-scale change. Right. And so starting a venture around that or creating a new policy around a single piece of trash is not going to be worth the effort for, for, for the tiny actionability. Mm-hmm. And so this is one of the hardest things that I find in the design thinking process is, is scoping those problems and framing those problems at that defined stage. Because a lot of it ends up being this kind of gut reaction to balance those two things out. How big of a problem should we be tackling that makes it still actionable that when we get to the ideate stage, we can actually move these ideas forward, create action, execute on the ideas, but it's not so small that it doesn't matter at the end of the day. And we can't actually create something that's valuable to customers or end users.
0: Yeah. One of the things that I do
1: in in my coaching uh, is
0: I, I find people are often a bit blind or maybe just casual with a time horizon in which they're thinking about these problems. Because it has a great, makes a great deal of difference to the, the impact to actionability Absolutely. scale is, am I thinking about a quarter? Or am I thinking about 10 years, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so I, I was, last couple, like two months ago now, I was in Lexington and it, it's not hard to notice. There's, um, there's plenty of homeless people. I don't wanna say it's a problem because they're not that disruptive, but for the people who are homeless, it's obviously obviously a challenge and a problem. But if you just take that problem and say, well, over what time horizon? Well, during my week in Lexington, you give somebody you know, some money. Uh, if you think about it in a year's time frame, maybe you donate to the local shelter. If you think about it on a 10-year time horizon, maybe you start a foundation that works with a bunch of organizations to try to systemically solve it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and right now, just using you know, where we are, sort of Q4 2022 as an example, inventory is a big problem, right? There's a lot of companies that couldn't keep up, couldn't keep up, couldn't keep up, then the brakes went on and now they're stuck with anywhere from a month to six months worth of inventory. Hmm. Um, I've, I've heard some staggering numbers of, of how much inventory is stuck out there. But yeah, you know, then they talk to me about inventory. It's like, well, are you trying to solve it for six months? In which case it's like, can I sell this at a discount? Can I bundle this? Can I convince these customers to take this away? Can I shut down this production? That's a six month time horizon. if you said, I wanna solve this over five years, So you still might do all those things, but then you say, let's get really good inventory, decision-making, modeling. Let's go hire two PhDs. Let's go build better mathematical models. Let's improve the speed of decision-making and do some very different things just by changing, take the
1: same problem statement and then change the time horizon in which you look at it. Um, And and that's absolutely something that we fundamentally agree with and believe in. Um, That's actually one of the The boxes that I think is missing in the business model canvas, and I always add in when I talk about it, is great. You've made a business model canvas for your early stage venture, but is this your business model canvas for month one, year one, year three? Yes. Because those three business model canvases are going to look fundamentally different. And so very often there's this perception that you have one business model. And it's not true. And just like in early stage design thinking, that one problem that you're solving now may be fundamentally different than the problem you're solving two years from now. And so we always talk about that time horizon in in what you're trying to accomplish. And that's one of the nice things about design thinking is you can do it on those different timeframes. The same empathy information, you can choose, okay, I need to define a problem, ideate, prototype, and test on our first product. And also on our first product suite. And then also on the way in which we're going to tackle the the social side of this challenge that we're facing, right? As a a separate avenue. And we'll go as extreme as to say, you can use this to to work on designing your life. There's a lot of work that's going into life design now, Mm -hmm. using the same fundamental principles, different nomenclature again, but same fundamental principles that instead of empathizing with an external customer or user and defining the challenges and the direction you want to take, You're empathizing with yourself and your family and the people close to you to understand what are your values and what do you care about, define what you want your life to look like, then ideate on the ways in which you can get there and then prototype and test it by trying out different career paths, different living experiences, different people and relationships that you you spend your time with, see what you like and don't like, and then iterate on that. So we go from time frames of, you know, this from now until next class to from now through the rest of your life mm-hmm. in in time frame shifts of, of applying the process yeah and that's
0: that's uh you know i'll look at my myself as an example you know i'm towards the end of my career and and as i, I look at whatever business i'm building now it's like well it, you know i probably can't look at it as a 30-year thing <laughs> so so you know my designing for next year or my designing for Ten years out, and I'm, I'm trying to make all my decisions based on ten to twenty years out, um, with with the idea that let's let's make whatever I'm going to do last and not rush into it. But it changes it a great deal. Uh, there's a lot of things I would have done very differently this year had I been designing for this year. Right? Mm-hmm. But it is, you know, as it applies to entrepreneurs, which is not the only, you know, it's the it's the the place. You in particular uh, spent a lot of time with design thinking. Obviously, not the only domain in which it, it gets applied, um, but you know, as entrepreneurs, many that I that I coach, that I know you coach, because we coach many of the same people in that regard, who who want the who want the, they have the thirty year vision, but they also want to implement that year one or day one, right? And it it, it lacks some feasibility. In, in that regard, which, which, uh, um, you would say would come out of the test to learn
1: phase, but, uh, if you get stuck in that mode too early, you're still stuck. Yeah. And so, so we always try and talk to, to students, especially who are coming into this a lot of times with, with very good hearted, big visions and say, great, keep that vision because that's, what's going to motivate you. But we also need to make this vision actionable now. And the easiest way to kind of look at it is is just looking at parallel examples. And so when you look at any venture that's been created, they start with solving one problem really, really well, and then grow from that success. I don't know of any venture that started off by solving, you know, 50 different problems for 50 different customers all around the world. Mm -hmm. They started by solving one problem really well for one specific customer group executed on that phenomenally well, which then led them to be able to deliver all of the value later on. And the easiest example within the college environment, I use Facebook all the time just because it's so simple. One college campus connecting one student to another student on a single college campus, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: executed really, really, really well, saw the value, learned from that process, grew to a college campus to another college campus. This huge step forward for them. Right? And then could expand from there to the nation and the globe and acquiring, you know, Instagram and, and now becoming you know the, the the global company that it is. Right? But students very often see that and say, Oh well, Facebook started as Facebook. And it didn't. You know, it started very focused with a very specific problem and customer group, executed phenomenally well to be able to grow to the impact that they can have now.
0: Yeah, and that's and that's where we, you know, you, you go. This is where i think studying history is really useful and uh, especially business history i think is underappreciated like you know people study history for the sake of studying history i don't want to get off on a too deep a tangent but you you study where america is today and you subtract social media and it's where we were the, the patterns are the same as they were post-civil war like, there's a lot of the same patterns exist but when it applies to business history you go you know everybody wants to look at an apple right or a microsoft or, or one of these things and when you really study the history um you look at how many pivots there were you look at how curious they were how i don't want to say humble but willing to learn right because it wasn't you know go use steve jobs as an example i don't think he was ever humble <laughs> but but he was so willing to learn, right? He was willing to take lessons and so much so that he had a coach, right? Which, uh, which most people don't even know uh, 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 about Bill Campbell, but he had somebody coaching him, right? So, uh, but but they, didn't, they didn't set up to have a portfolio of products, right? They set out to have one product and then a second one and then a third. And it was quite a while before they even had two at the same time. So uh, people missed that uh, in the, in the history. And of course, yeah, they don't want to spend 30, 40 years building their enterprise, but that's, that's the gig,
1: right? Yeah. And, and to that point, the trillion dollar coach about Bill Campbell, phenomenal read. If, if, if your listeners haven't read that, it's a, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal book that goes into some of that. Um, and, and I very often on the Steve Jobs topic get students that come to me challenging me in the design thinking process saying, well, Steve Jobs is famous for saying, if I asked my customers what they want, they wouldn't have even been able to tell me, you know, and this air of my customers wouldn't even be able to tell me. And so I love when students bring this up. I yeah. love it. What a because, setup, right? Yes. Yeah, because they've, they've, <laughs> they've, they're aware and they're challenging and I always encourage that in classes and in conversations like disagree. That's what makes it interesting, right? Disagree, bring up your, your challenges. I, I might not have the right answer, right? You know? And so we, we have these debates over, over these items and, and this one comes up all the time. It's a, it's a regular conversation in design thinking when I'm emphasizing this idea of you have to understand your customers. And the biggest shift between, between the Steve Jobs of the world saying, and my customers wouldn't even know what they wanted, absolutely true. And that's why in design thinking, you're not starting with asking what they want, you're exactly. starting by understanding what problems they have. Yep. So they, Apple and, and in Steve Jobs era had a phenomenal understanding of what their customers' challenges, problems, needs, desires were. And then they were used, able to get to the ideate stage once they understood that and come up with phenomenally innovative products. And so it's, it's really nice to get into that, that phase because it clarifies the difference between getting feedback on an idea or asking your customers what they want, which is generally a, 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 a difficult question. Mm-hmm. If you're asking a customer, what do you want? Well, what would you want? If you focus on what problems, needs, and desires they have, It's a lot easier to then take that information and come up with innovative concepts to solve that when you start applying the creativity techniques within that ideate stage. And so so I love that that challenge that students often often have. And going back to your granular concept, the granularity and the detail difference between being confident in knowing you can come up with innovative ideas that your customers wouldn't have been able to think of. And Henry Ford has the same same famous quote around, you know, if I asked my customers what they would want, they would have said a faster horse. Right. So he's absolutely right. But he recognized that there were problems in the market that they wanted a faster transportation. Right. right? Great. If you understand the problem, then you can ideate on these new solutions and deliver those to customers who actually want them because you're solving a real problem in the world. Yeah.
0: And and, and I again, another potential tangent rabbit hole is, uh, you know, people want to be like steve jobs whose main characteristic was being original and i'm like yeah then be original right don't be like Mm -hmm. steve Jobs. you want to be like steve jobs be original that's your that's going to be your your uh uh, your best pathway to be like steve jobs but uh people want to copy him, and that's that's not being like steve jobs that's the exact opposite of being like steve jobs uh, and we could get into the whole Theranos uh, <laughs> example of, of what happens when you take, take that thought process too far. The, the, uh, you know, so, so you start to look at design thinking and, and where it starts. So you, know, you talk about the empathy phase, and, and this is similar to a lot of problem solving. So a lot of problem solving starts with the problem statement. It's more of a phase two or step two in design thinking because it's multiple problem statements because you're trying to solve a thematic problem mm-hmm. rather than a specific problem. Digress a bit, but you know, there's this argument that you start with a problem statement and, and I argue that there's you know like a whole bunch more that happens because you have to even decide that there's something there you want to have a problem statement about. Mm-hmm. And the same thing is true of design thinking. There's a phase zero, right? that gets you up to that start line says, well, what customers am I talking to? Um, yep. So, you know, what does either design thinking or what do you do to coach people that don't even know where the starting line is?
1: Yeah. So this is a phenomenal question. Um, and, and one that is, is overlooked most often, I would say in, in design thinking. Um, so design thinking starts with empathy as the first stage. But when I teach design thinking and we have classes on this, we don't get to the first stage, quote unquote, first stage until a few weeks into the semester. Because before that, you have to have what we call a point of view. You have to have a starting point. And so what we try and do is say, you have to take a point of view of the world in some way. Mm -hmm. That can come from a lot of places. It could come from the news because you were inspired by a story. It come from personal experience. Many of the students that that we work with together have some personal experience that have affected them and they say okay well I have a point of view on this personal experience now that that this wasn't this didn't seem efficient it didn't seem right Uh, an example of this was was Gianna Jara who is a just graduated she's a bioengineering uh, student um, and she had eight back-to-back UTIs urinary tract infections she kept getting prescribed more and more antibiotics, eventually became resistant to those antibiotics and started to say and take this point of view of there's got to be a better way. My point of view is that there's got to be a better way. That's actually happens before design thinking, this mm-hmm. point of view that's formed. Once that point of view is formed, then you can start saying, okay, well, let me go do some empathy interviews. Let me go do some background research. So before we even do that empathy interview, we start with, the googleable knowledge. And so you have this point of view, and that point of view may say, I think there's a better option than just continually on the back end being prescribed antibiotics for urinary tract infections. So Gianna started Googling it, right? WebMD, and she's a smart student, can filter through you know, the, the content there. Look for real research that's been published on this. And she found some interesting research around probiotics and, and the beneficial qualities that probiotics can have on vaginal health and, and pH levels um, of taking a, a probiotic with prebiotics associated with that, um, and and the benefits that that can have, that then prevent the UCIs from happening in the first place. So she found this Googleable knowledge. All of that happened before any formal design thinking process would be introduced. Mm-hmm. At that point, then she can start going and talking to friends and families and doctors and empathizing with them and understanding why, from a user's perspective, they aren't taking prebiotics that are on the market. From a doctor's perspective, why they wouldn't be prescribing these. From, from a, a research perspe- researcher's perspective, why, they're, why the research is moving in one direction versus another direction, empathizing then defining where the gaps are, the problems are. She did a phenomenal job of that. Mm-hmm. She conducted on-campus research through the engineering program at Lehigh under, uh, under Sabrina Jedlicka's direction, created this new research on identifying the gaps, coming up with new probiotic uh, uh, formulations, and then started prototyping and testing those in a lab environment and eventually into a, into a consumer-facing facing product. And when you zoom all the way out on that process, it's very similar to to lots of these other startup mindset processes, you know, customer centric processes. Um, and she did all that. She created her first TikTok while you were her mentor, um, and and she was so hesitant to do that in the beginning, and so hesitant, and nervous to put her story out there, and nervous to put um, this this journey out there. She did it, and this TikTok video went viral, and she had five thousand people on a waiting list before her product was even ready. Right, and it was such clear evidence of when the process is used right starting all the way from before the process even, right, that point of view, it can actually turn into these very real tangible results. And she has been so coachable through all of that and following this process directly and able to actually make this progress and now is set up for for something that there's still going to be lots of hurdles for her. And who knows if it's going to be a a commercial um, success. But right now, She's done all that she can possibly do to set herself up for the most likelihood of, of success. And it started all the way with that pre-point of view statement, mm-hmm. personal experience, point of view. And so sometimes it's, it's personal experience. Other times, it's just an observation that you've made in the world. And so that's, that's the kind of second conversation that a lot of times we'll have with students who aren't quite sure they want to start a venture right now. And we use a lot of the, the commonly referred to data around, you know, the most successful startup ventures aren't formed by people that are graduating college. They're formed by people in their mid forties mm-hmm. is, is the most common. And a lot of that is because throughout that early stage career, you're able to form those point of views perspectives about the industry you're working in or about the work environment or about problems that you're starting to see. And you form these pre point of views, mm-hmm that then can kick off the design thinking by knowing who you should even be talking to in the first place.
0: Yeah, and I think that that point of view, and this, this applies to sort of all problem solving, it, it provides some of that motivation, right? So so I have, a, I have a chapter in my book on you know ownership and initiative. and And the whole point is that problem solving doesn't work. If somebody doesn't take some ownership and display some initiative, and moves the thing to the next stage and takes the next step and, you know, gets, pushes things out of the way and says, this is what the next step is, we're gonna make it happen no matter what. And so, you know, problem solving doesn't just happen because you schedule the next meeting. And and, and I think design thinking and entrepreneurship, it's sort of the same thing in that the only way is through, right? And you kind of need the motivation to go through, to, to do the hard work, to, to, you know, this isn't just about long hours. This is about getting frustrated, hitting walls, uh, reshaping, relearning, becoming a different person, <laughs> all, all the things that can come along with this, right? But that point of view becomes that source of inspiration, and energy, motivation that, that moves you, creates that ownership and initiative. Um, now, we, we've both met people who have, they wanted to be entrepreneurs, right? But that was their only driving factor right? That that they wanted to be an entrepreneur. They didn't have a motivating, driving point of view that they were trying to work through to go solve something. And, you know, they still can be successful, but it was a very different sort of pathway because they didn't have a point of view they were
1: working from other than just, I want to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. And so, so I always talk about the design thinking process. There's these five steps. And so we've got five steps of design thinking. It seems very simple up front. Um, and towards the end of semesters or when I'm working with students through that process, I'll, I'll I say very, very clearly, these five steps are fundamentally useless and you can forget everything you, you've heard unless you can apply the concepts overlaid to that of iteration and execution. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of times you look at it on the, on the front and you say, okay... It's steps one through five and then I'm done. Mm -hmm. And it's not that way. You will not be successful if you do it that way. It must require, it requires iteration. It requires you to get to your ideate stage, come up with ideas, realize you don't actually know enough about your customers to come up with the right idea. So you have to go back and do some more interviews. Get to prototyping and testing and test out some concepts and realize your idea is so far off you need to go back to the ideate stage or you've actually fundamentally defined the problem wrong. and You need to go back and define that problem again. So iteration, and then without the layer of execution on top of iteration, it doesn't matter because we've all heard of the people in our lives who have the million dollar idea, you know, Oh, my uncle thought of this, you know, 10 years ago, and he thought of Facebook or Apple or the new toaster before anybody else. Yep. Great. Your uncle didn't execute on the idea. So it's irrelevant, Mm -hmm. right? So iteration and execution have to be layered on to the five steps of design thinking, or that process is, is irrelevant. Yeah. And I think one of my, my favorite examples of that, um, is, uh, it's Sam Benchagib. He's a student uh, at, at Lehigh. Um, he came in. He, was, he grew up in Bali, and he saw this, this problem of ocean plastic pollution firsthand. Mm-hmm. And so when he was at elementary school with his older brother and sister, they'd go out and they'd do beach cleanups, clean up all the beach. And they'd come out the next morning. The beach would be filled with plastic again. Right. And so since a very early age, he had a very clear point of view, this motivating factor, this this belief that this was a problem in the world. And he came in, and when he came to Lehigh, he was on the Lehigh tennis team. He started getting involved in the Baker Institute, and he had this motivation and this point of view that drove him to understand the problems in the world. So he started, his first venture was called Make a Change World, and it was really looking at the, the kind of viral content. How do we create viral content around this to, to affect change? And so he started doing it and he would have one video, you know, say about making, making kayaks out of plastic bottles and kayaking down the, some of the dirtiest rivers in the world because he found that 90% of ocean plastic pollutions come from our rivers. So he wanted to highlight this problem. And, and it's unbelievable visual content that he created through that. And it got viral. It got the attention of, of the, the president of Bali at the time. The president of Bali met with his older brother. The president committed 3,000 army troops to clean up that river over the next five years. And there's now fish returning to that river. And it's been this incredible success. But what most people don't know is that he would then go and have a video that had you know five views on YouTube. Mm-hmm. An expedition, this big thing, raise awareness, and nothing happened. And he wasn't demotivated by that. He just iterated in the process to learn from that and understand, okay, why is this one working and this one not? Mm -hmm. And eventually he's been able to grow this and say, you know what, I'm going to do more than, than, than the marketing. And he's actually started a second company called Soongai Watch. They now have close to 100 employees across Bali. They have, tr- they have trash barriers that they've engineered that they set up in rivers, collect the trash on a daily basis. They've started recycling facilities, sell into traditional recycling uh, streams for the, for the trash that can't fit within those recycling streams. They're actually creating their own products out of it, building materials and, and working on other products that they can create out of that. They have sponsorships of those barriers of companies that know that they're creating that waste and so they can sponsor the the trash barriers as as corporate social responsibility. Um, And then then the most interesting thing that they're doing is they're actually scanning every item that's coming out of the river Mm -hmm. and they're creating a data set to show which types of plastics, which types of pollution should be addressed on a political level on a policy level and are going to have this data set that's massive on truly understanding where is the social plastic pollution coming from at a a completely granular level Mm -hmm. all the way down to the individual item tied to the individual river in the individual country um, that it's being being pulled from. And so he's done this and he is just the model of execution, right? he came in in his last semester at Lehigh and his last quick story about him, but, but he's just such an inspirational person. He came in the last semester at his time at Lehigh and he wanted to do an independent study with, with me. And he came and he said, I want the focus of my independent study to be planning a run across the country to raise awareness for ocean plastic pollution, largely to people who may have never seen the ocean before. I said, Sam, if you were any other student coming in saying you're going to run across the country when you graduate, I, I'd call BS. Yeah. But because it's you and you've proved your ability to execute over and over again, absolutely. Whatever I can do to help, and on the last day of that, that independent study, through all of the credit to him, he came in with a fully sponsored run. He graduated Lehigh, he started on in, in New York in the Atlantic Ocean. He started running, he came through campus, and, and 117 back to back marathons later, he jumped into the Pacific Ocean. Mm-hmm. That story of execution, it doesn't matter if he gets it right or wrong the first time. Yeah, I have 100% confidence that he's gonna be able to figure it out because he understands the balance of execution and iteration layered on top of these fundamental concepts of design thinking and, and, and the stepped process. Without that, he would have failed his, his first semester at Lehigh and he would have gotten nowhere with these ventures, right. but he's continuously iterated on the concepts and continuously executed on every new idea that he's had.
0: Yeah. I kind of wonder if the same plastic ocean waste that rolls up on Bali started rolling up on Malibu and Hamptons, if we, we'd be in a different state. Right exactly. Now. But, but yeah, that, that execution energy, it's, it's a hard thing, you know, it, I, I when I, we talk about lean transformations, a broad big topic in, in big companies often, I like to I have to say that the two biggest ingredients are the are, are the behaviors you, you build and the leadership. But the leadership is primarily about creating that motivation for people willing to do hard things, right? And and, and that, that's the whole point. Um, one of my sort of I don't know why I love silly quotes from movies that you would never think would relate to this stuff, but there's one from A League of Their Own where Tom Hanks says, it's supposed to be hard. If it wasn't hard, everyone would do it. The hard is what makes it great. And I remember this quote because I've, I've played it for people over and over again. And 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 that's exactly what it is. it is. It is hard, right? All of, you know, systematic problem solving in whatever form you take it as, it's supposed to be hard because, You're putting you're you're putting the world right. Usually not in a measurable way, but you're putting the world in a different state at the other end of problem solving. So it's an act of creation, right? In a lot of ways, and sometimes it's just an act of recreating what was already true and ceased to be true. But it's still you know now we're here and we have to get back to a different level, and that is that is alone is an act of creation, and so. You need that, that motivating execution, driving force, whatever you want to call it. And so whether a leader provides that for an organization or an individual provides it for themselves, it's it's one of those hidden ingredients, right? So it's like five steps of design thinking. If it was easy and if anyone could do it, it wouldn't be very useful, right? Because yeah. everyone get the same answer. It's just a, a guide path for somebody with motivation to think differently and solve problems in a different way
1: and and fundamentally that's actually why I love working at a university so much um, and and is that hidden motivation for me that I didn't realize until I really got into it um, a student said said years ago um, and, and we see this happen all the time but she just verbalized it so well she said I used to go around the problem uh, around the world saying look at all these problems somebody should really solve it And now I go around looking at the world and say, look at all these problems. I can go solve it. Yeah. And that mindset shift, I don't care if she goes starts a venture or she goes into industry or she goes works in a nonprofit or she goes and and travels internationally. Doesn't matter to me. That perspective to go around with the self-confidence and the the self-awareness to be able to see problems as opportunities for change is a fundamental shift that she will carry with her for the rest of her life. And Mm -hmm. we see that happening with students across the board when they start understanding these principles and really making it become part of themselves as opposed to just some academic concept, right? But where you actually believe it, you Mm -hmm. you see it and you say, there's a problem. I can go do something about it. I could, I could change that thing. And here's a way in which I can kind of guide myself through that process. Yeah. And, and I mean, even at
0: such a small level, if you say I, I work in a, make it up a dentist's office. And, you know, we have this really bad culture, nobody trusts anybody, I'm going to go change that. Mm-hmm. Well, great. Yesterday wasn't true, and tomorrow it will be. It doesn't have to be, I'll say, worthy of writing a book about, right? Um, it, it just has to be the initiative to, 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 to make a positive impact, and that, that's part of what, what drives that forward. And it's what I, you know, what I really love about working with students as well. Um, it, it's a combination of that fact of people looking at things with this—I don't want to say unbridled ambition, but this desire to go make it, make an impact—combined with the the rapidness of learning, right? Keeps me flexible and agile, right? So mm-hmm. just like when I used to play soccer, uh, um, you know, playing with younger people who were literally fle- more flexible and agile <laughs> than me uh, was was good for my game, right? Um, I couldn't be more flexible and more agile, but I had to be smarter. And, and working with students who, every day their ideas in a different phase was was a good muscle building exercise for me. Um, I remember one summer I was, you know, the, the programs, I don't know if it was then, I know it's now called the Hatchery, mm-hmm. which is a summer, you know, summer program to go you know, do all of this stuff, right? Yep. Um, uh, th- that that you help run, and and so it was open mountaintop, and I think you had assigned me to two students, two student teams, working on startups, and and then I, I went in one day to go go do some of the, the mentoring and coaching, and other two other teams heard me overheard me talking to those teams. oh hey, can you come work with us too? And and then I did, and it was like I just. I got to think through like four iterations of four different businesses all in one day. Like, there, there's it's very hard to take some hundred year old company and I, I work with at least three hundred year old companies, if not more. I have to think about that now. That <laughs> um, that aren't going to change that fast, right? So it, it's it's just it's just great exercise for my own mind
1: to keep keep uh, keep flexible and. And keep those muscles, you know, well exercised. Yes. And I find that every day and And sometimes it's, Within the same day, okay, multiple, you know, communications or meetings at the same team that have learned some new thing and are fundamentally changing how they're operating their organization because they're so early, they can change that. Mm-hmm. And because the reality is they've actually adopted a lot of the design thinking principles around being very responsive to their early stage prototyping and testing. And so they don't see their, you know, alpha product launch as the only option. They see that as a testing ground right? It's a prototype and we're testing that. And the, the object of that is not to convince people that it's right. It's to learn from people if it's right. Yeah. And then change it if it's not and tweak it if it's not and move, move in a different direction if it's not. And so it's, it's nice to see when that actually happens that at the stages that they're at, in these very, very early, early phases, they're not going around trying to trying to sell, right? A hundred-year-old company that's making revenue, you know, has a business to keep going. These early stage ventures they're going around and saying, I need to figure out what business I can create so that it is around 100 years from now. And so they're changing things so rapidly at that phase. It's incredibly, incredibly interesting to see and, and to learn from. And a lot of times to, to try and help provide the <laughs> the clarity and and, and um, sometimes just understanding that lots of people go through this and it's hard, but it's going to be okay. Yeah. I had a student say years ago that you're, you know, our... our founder circle, we call it founder circle meeting. We do, you know, once a month or, or, or more, um, just a bunch of undergraduate students primarily who are all working on ventures and the recognition that, that they didn't really have a group to kind of share what was going on. Right? right. Cause their friends, you know, understand school being hard, but don't necessarily understand how, you know, a customer not paying their bill is hard. Mm-hmm. Right? And so one of the students in that group said a, said a few years ago, you know, this is, this is kind of like entrepreneurial therapy <laughs> because we just share our problems and then hear how other people solve them. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's really nice when you can learn from that because you recognize that although people are changing their ventures all the time, in a group like that, you see that most early stage ventures are changing their ideas all the time, right? Yeah. And most people applying design thinking in an appropriate way are changing their ideas all the time because they're learning and then evaluating and then tweaking them as needed in that iteration iterative process that we talked about before.
0: Yeah. So last, last thing I want to get into uh, just around design thinking. Um, so in, in Lean, you know, it, usually the journey starts off with a bunch of tools and practices and sort of rote application. And, and, and then over time, you build up habits and just sort of new ways of thinking. And so like most of my work today, I would call not about Lean, but in, influenced by Lean thinking. So I, 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 I'm not a thought partner on lean. I'm a lean thinking thought partner. <laughs> um, and, and so while probably none of us really are successful at living lean behaviors all the time, you, you sort of learn to think a certain way. It's just who you are at this point. Like I had I had knee surgery a few weeks ago, and I, I heard like pre-op. I heard four things drop at the floor, and I'm just like, okay, what does this tell me about their process and their, you know, it. It was very unsettling, let's uh, put it that way. Um, but but you just can't turn it off. You can't just go, oh, I'm in pre op and they know what they're doing. I'm like, no, no how, do, how do things fail and how do small things become big, big problems? And I can't turn that off. And so, just with design thinking as, as a corollary, do you think there's a certain amount of, of practice, teaching, learning, coaching, or whatever? where you get to the point where you just think this way and, and, and what's that pathway look like?
1: Yeah. So, so Lisa Gessler, the executive director of the Baker Institute that I work for at at Lehigh, she's been recently referring to it as, as we're familiar with the terms of, you know, you learn and then you do, and her new addition is B. Yeah. So in, in design thinking, it really is that way. You can learn it, you can do it, you can apply it and then you can become it where, where you embody it in the way that you think. Mm -hmm. And so I I completely agree with that philosophy, that exposure is great. Trying it out one or two times is great. And eventually the more you do it, the more you coach others in doing it, the more you see it, the more you practice it yourself. Now when I'm working on things when I'm trying to design my own programs or thinking about my own ventures or thinking about other things that I'm working on, I don't sit down and say, okay, today I need to empathize and tomorrow I need to define and the next day I need to sit down and apply the creativity techniques. It's now just built into how I think. When, I, when I'm when i thinking about a venture, I man, I should really talk to this person because I'm curious about how they think about this. Mm-hmm. And when I zoom out, I say, oh yeah, that's an empathy interview. Right. But I didn't set up saying, I'm going to go into an empathy interview today and I'm going to empathize. And so it does absolutely just become part of how you think and operate. Um, it, it especially is true around that, that ID8 phase. We, we talk a lot of times for the first time people are going through that phase about creativity techniques and, and ways to kind of break down the barriers of the normal ways we think about solving a problem. Um, and simple things like go for quantity over quality at the ideate phase, because usually the first... 10 ways of solving the problem are probably pretty similar to the other ways that other people have thought about solving the problem, mm-hmm. right? The hundredth way that you, Jamie, think about solving a way to write a, a friend a letter, the hundredth way you come up with is going to be different than the hundredth way I come up with. Mm-hmm. But the first 10 ways of writing a friend a letter are probably going to be very similar. Yeah. And so just the simple concept of quantity over quality in the beginning to stretch your mind to ways of solving a problem in a new way, that's something that is a creativity technique early on, but later on just becomes habit, right? Sure, I might become excited about the third idea I come up with, but until I've come up with 50, I'm not going to commit to executing on that third idea Mm -hmm. because I know that these other things, there's going to be other things down the line and I don't want to commit too soon. So a lot of that, that in the creativity phase is the most obvious transition that I recognize when a person is going from, um, from learning it to actually becoming it. Yep. Right? When they come in and they challenge the assumption or apply creativity techniques like false facts or fishbone, but they're not doing it by saying, now I'm going to use the false facts technique but they start coming out with concepts that are completely fundamentally different because they've naturally applied that, that concept in just the way that they're, they're thinking.
0: Yep. Yeah. I, I think, you know, there's a, there's a book on my shelf here uh, called Practicing Lean, which Mark Raymond, uh, put together. Um, uh, I contributed a chapter is all I contributed, <laughs> but, uh, but, but he put together and a lot of it was about the practice. It was about that. The whole idea, like we talk about practicing law or practicing, uh, medicine and and the whole idea of practicing even if you're at a professional level even if you're in it right it's deliberate it's thoughtful it continues to make you better until you know such time as you're sort of in that in that mode and operate that way and, and I think there's there's a lot to that idea of, of B right where it, it just sort of turns on and it's how you operate uh, from from that regard I, I do think there's you know, you go look at Steve Jobs as an example, since we've already brought him up, and you go look at some of the things that he failed in early, right? Like sticking with the design for too long, making it too complex, etc., and and ultimately leading to him getting ousted from the company. He almost, I mean, he may have overdid it, but he, he flipped that the other way to say, no, no, no we're gonna hit deadlines. We're gonna ship on time. We're gonna, we'll fix it in the next iteration. If we can't fix it now, he he took that as a lesson, and he didn't he didn't do a whole big mea culpa. He just operated differently, right? He mm-hmm. just learned from that moment and then took took the next, you know, sort of next logical step. And and, and I think the the best ones, right, do do it exactly that way. They're they're sort of just. Inherently continuing to learn and ask questions and, and test and experiment.
1: And, and that's actually a challenge from the educational side that that I've fallen into is you can only teach so much of this. Absolutely. And so, so we'll get contacted very often from, you know, industry or from other, you know, segments of the university to say, well, I want to become a design thinking facilitator, or I want to get our organization to use design thinking. Um, and you know, what's it going to cost or how long is it going to take? And it's, it's one of those things that like, I know I can teach you the five steps of design thinking in X amount of time at a reasonable degree of understanding why you do those steps and what those steps are. Right. But the transition from learning to being is not obvious because it really just depends on how much that person is going to be practicing it. And so we very often just say like, I don't know if I can teach you how to be a facilitator in design thinking. Cause it depends on if you're going to use it and practice it. And I can't, I can't be the one that just delivers that to you. You actually have to choose to apply this and try it over and over and over and over again to develop it until it just becomes part of the way your organization thinks and operates and the way you think and operate, and it's embedded in there but that's not a guaranteed outcome that I can provide in some kind of consulting way, even if I tried to. Right. right? So we always say, we can show you the steps. We can teach you these steps. We can work with you in trying to practice it and apply it, but you're going to have to practice and apply it before, before that outcome will actually exist in an organizational change. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It'll seem like a strange analogy, but I, you know, we're in the middle of the world cup and, and most people know I'm a huge soccer fan. Um, And, and there's certain players that bring a specific talent to the field and then like speed. (laughs) And then when that talent is gone, so are they. And there's other players that evolve their game, right? They keep learning and pivoting and changing. And, you know, as they, as they age, they might have a longer career. Those are the players that then become coaches. And those are the players that then also evolve as a coach and, even though I'm not an Arsenal fan, Mikel Arteta is a good example of this. Where he his game evolved. He was as he as he aged, as he grew, became a smarter player. And he took an assistant coach under under Pep Guardiola, and 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 now at Arsenal, he's gone through his own sort of transformation. And unfortunately, was given enough leeway to to make this happen, but he's he's now being heralded for leading the league. Right? Whether he finishes that way or not, we'll see. But but I think it's that, you yeah, it's that living your life that way, how seriously you take it along mm-hmm. the way, how deliberately you practice uh, makes, makes, a, makes a big difference. I was, I was talking with an organizational leader, and we were just contrasting some of the people in their organization about who's not a learner, who, who's a natural learner, and they just happen mm-hmm. to learn things, and who's a deliberate learner right? Which is like, I, I'm going to practice learning, right? I'm going to yep. set out with a goal of learning. And, and I think that's the pathway that, that really sustains itself in a, in a whole bunch of ways. So,
1: yeah. And I, and I agree with that. I see it in the students. You can see it in the classroom. You can see it outside the classroom who takes ownership of it and is, is genuinely curious about pursuing the next thing. Yeah. And so I absolutely agree with that.
0: So we're gonna we're gonna start wrapping up here.
1: Um, you know, what'd you think of the whiskeys? Did you have a favorite of the two? Or I I was pleasantly not surprised because I knew that would they would be better, but I have completed both glasses with complete joy. <laughs> <laughs> I've enjoyed both. I've got a little bit left of the the Blue Run uh,
0: uh, High Rye whiskey, but uh, the Nik is always a always a joy. And uh, yeah, I enjoy this uh, this blue run as well. So, so so Lehigh's campus. M- most okay. people that visit it say it's one of the most beautiful campuses they've ever seen. Right? Mm-hmm. Old buildings, big hill, great mm-hmm. in the fall with leaves and yeah. all that kind of Old stuff. Old growth oak stone yeah. is beautiful. It's a beautiful campus. So, so uh, you know, I think they are working on uh, one day having a, a bar or a, some kind of, something like that on campus, but. If you actually opened a whiskey bar, which I don't think will be the, what actually happens, but if you were to actually take one of the buildings on Lehigh's campus
1: and turn it into a whiskey bar, uh, what what building would that be and why? Uh, so this is this is an easy one for me because I spend a lot of time in this space already, um, but it would be the Wilbur Powerhouse. And the reason I picked that one is because it's this... It's an old historic building. It was the original powerhouse. Yep. Um, and in the, the past few decades, it's been converted into this open collaborative maker space, entrepreneurial space mix of interesting people. Mm-hmm. And so I think the idea of having a whiskey bar where you're surrounded by million dollar, you know, metal laser centering printers and T-shirt <laughs> printers and they're they're building an entire uh, electronics lab downstairs right now with the ability to do printed circuit boards and the surrounding of that level of like creative maker space with the right people that spend time in that place mm. and adding a little bit of alcohol where you just want to sit around and hang out sounds like the, the makings of a, of a wonderful environment that i would choose to spend my friday nights in yeah
0: yeah no it sounds awesome just uh you know, at a certain point you, 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 you open the bar and you continue working. Right. And uh, having neat conversations. I I will say my, my time at MIT, it was whether it was late at night or early in the morning, sort of the outside of the classroom, casual conversations that just sort of took interesting turns were the most interesting of my entire tenure there. And that would certainly help, help lubricate that, that process. Um, yeah, so for me it would be Linderman Library, which is which is old old library. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had studied there, uh, you know, occasionally, um, and uh, you know, filled with old books and there's some big leather chairs and there's some old wood floors and some stained glass and uh, I just think taking a section of that and turning it into a to a, a quiet whiskey bar. I think the if it was a whiskey and cigar. Bar, I don't smoke cigars, but if it was a whiskey and cigar bar, it'd probably be more fitting. I'd <laughs> probably damage the books, but uh, I feel like probably not the whole library. But I feel like that'd be there'd be a section of that that would make a good whiskey yeah.
1: bar. And if your listeners haven't looked up the rotunda at Linderman, it is a stunning, stunning building with cast iron spiral staircases and three levels of these books in this round area with. You know, stained glass in the roof—it's—it's it's a stunning, stunning, stunning space. It,
0: it really is, especially for United States that doesn't have the, some of the history that you yeah. get to see in libraries in, in Europe. But it is—it is, it is spectacular. So, well, we'll, we'll wrap up. Uh, we'll wrap up here. Uh, Mark will be back in our next episode. And uh, thanks for thanks for coming out and doing this with me.
1: Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the way that I usually wrap up with students, and the way I usually wrap up with students when we have a guest is to share an appreciation. And so my appreciation to Jamie is for, for listeners who don't know, Jamie has spent well over a decade unbelievably dedicated to giving back to Lehigh students. He has supported more students than probably any other mentor that we've had at Lehigh working with young founders. And he is the most trusted mentor that whenever I get to the point of a student saying, I'm doing this for real, The first call is to Jamie to say, okay, they're doing it for real, can you spend some time with them? Can you talk them through that transition from being a student entrepreneur to being an early stage founder in the world? And so my appreciation is to, to thank you just deeply for that time that you you spend. I've learned personally, you know, from you for, for a decade or more. Um, and I know students have just learned boatloads, and I get that feedback from them directly. So it's not just me saying that. <laughs> I hear from them the value that you've provided um, to, to them over, over such a long period of time. Well, So I so always
0: take for your that. call when you when you invite me in. So so thanks for coming out and uh, and cheers. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Lean Whiskey. To learn more or find more episodes, visit leanwhiskey.com, spelled either K-E-Y or K-Y. You can also visit leanblog.org slash leanwhiskey or jflinch.com
1: slash leanwhiskey. Look for us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. We are very grateful for
0: every rating, review, and follow. Until our next episode, cheers!